on my on my podcast feed. Oh, it says an error occurred. You are live, all three. Okay. Looks like we got a hiccup from LinkedIn, but it seems to be okay now. Um, and so where do you live? It's somewhere on the East Coast, right? Yeah. By the way, I just switched my mic. Does that sound better? Yeah, it does. Yeah. Cool. And, and yeah, we got I'm, people in here. Already, really? Yeah. yeah. Here, let me... Uh, let me yeah, let ahead. me roll the intro then. All right, yeah, go here ahead. we go. I'm David C. Barnett, and you're tuned in to Small Business and Deal Making, the podcast, YouTube channel, and blog where I talk about buying, selling, financing, and managing small and medium-sized businesses while controlling risk. So, if you're looking to take control of your future through buying a business one day, or if you already own a business and you're looking to grow or exit, you've come to the right place. I talk about interesting things. I talk to interesting people, and I answer your questions every week right here. So be sure to hit like and be sure to hit subscribe and let's get to it. Are you thinking of growing your business or beginning a journey into entrepreneurship? Take a shortcut to success by buying an existing and profitable business the right way. Visit businessbuyeradvantage.com and learn more about my online training, group coaching and consulting services designed to help you win. And speaking of win, we have a winner here. Ray, how are you doing today? Hey, I'm good. How are you doing? Good, good. Uh, everyone, this is Ray Drew. Ray and I became acquainted over uh, LinkedIn, I believe. And uh, we've had a few chats. You were a guest speaker in my uh, group coaching program a couple months ago. Where we were talking about uh, the company that you're with and the difference between bank and non-bank SBA lenders. Uh, I'm wondering, uh, just for people who may not know you, could you give us a... a a background on yourself and how you came into the world of, uh, of SBA lending? Sure. Yeah. And thanks for having me here, by the way. And uh, I am Ray Drew. I'm managing business development officer at Fundex Solutions. It's a non-bank SBA direct lender focused on business acquisitions. And I've been doing this for 12 years, ever since I graduated um, university. And I luckily, I love it very much. So I've been able to close hundreds and hundreds of SBA transactions. And my role is just to kind of navigate all the landmines that you kind of find yourself in, in, in this world. Awesome. And so then quickly, the difference between a, a bank SBA lender and a non-bank lender, obviously non-bank lenders, you don't accept deposits from, from people, right? Yeah. That's, that's one of the benefits is you can bank wherever you want. So we're just, we just do one thing, you know, it's the, it's like specialization to the max. We just do SBA seven, eight, loans and, and 80% of them just for business acquisitions. Okay. And so let, let's talk about that because on this channel, I've had many guests before we talk about SBA loan programs for people in the United States. And we talk about it always within the frame of reference of business acquisition. Um, what are some of the other reasons why someone might want a 7A loan? So um, the three most common scenarios that I finance are outside of business acquisition. The other two would be partner buyout, which is close to business acquisition. It's kind okay. of when you're buying out your partners, the SBA 7A loan can, can handle that. The other big one's real estate. Um, with the real estate, you know, typically folks around here in the United States, we finance real estate mainly three ways. Um, conventionally, there's a, a, a niche program called the 504, which is an SBA program. And then there's that broader SBA 7A program that can handle a whole bunch of different things, including real estate. And I actually use that to help people buy real estate um, at 100% financing. So it's businesses that want to preserve their capital, pay a little higher rate, but they're mostly in growth mode for the most part. So they're kind of mm -hmm. looking to reinvest their money. And so that, that, that that's one of the times where that program might be a good fit for those types of businesses. And that 504 program is the one with the longer amortization available. Correct? Lower rate, fixed rate. You're going to need at least 10% down on that one. It's it's different scenarios. But for the most part, if you're an existing business buying uh, an office building or an industrial building to run your business out of, um, you're looking at 10% down and a low fixed interest rate. It's a great program. I used to do it back in my early days. My first two years, all I did was 504. So then I switched over to 7A um, for the last 10 years. And and then, of course, conventional around here, you're putting in 20, 25, sometimes 30 percent down, getting a good low rate. But it's just a lot of cash that you're going to have to lay out for, yeah. for, the, for the down payment. 
So, so let me throw out a scenario then to you, and and uh, we will be answering questions later. If anyone who's viewing wants to type something into the comment section, uh, we'll, we will be doing that. Um, so, if if somebody, let's say, someone operates a plumbing company, and they wanted to go buy, you know, four of those uh, plain white vans, you know, like a, a services van, and they were being offered financing from the manufacturer through the dealership. What, could they then shop that with you and see if they might be able to get a better deal using an SBA loan? They can. Um, that doesn't mean they should. Uh, vehicles particularly you run into a few problems. So first of all, you're looking at about 11% interest rate on that type of deal. You typically can get lower on an auto focus loan. Um, and the advantage, if there is going to be an advantage, it's going to be the amortization instead of the typical maybe four, five, six years, you're going to get 10 years. Now the big downside is the servicing. You're now tying up in that example, four vehicles to one 10 year note. Those vehicles may not be with the business 10 years. You may need, you may want to swap them out and it gets a little bit muddy when you go to your SBA lender and say, I need a collateral release and you got to work through them, work through with that. Uh, it can be a little bit of a headache. So I, I don't like totally recommend it, but we do finance vehicles in general. It's often more often it's part of a bigger project like um, could be a debt refinance where we're just cleaning up the entire balance sheet and we're trying to improve cash flow and, and we may then refinance a couple of those vehicle notes in that situation. Um, or it could be a startup type of situation or expansion where we're leasing space, building out a new, you know, let's say restaurant and we need to add a van for catering and we'll throw it in there as well. Okay. So the, the whole debt consolidation thing, is that something you see quite often? We used to see it a lot um, because after, you know, when I got into the business, it was, it was 2011. So we were kind of at, at a point where people were still crawling out of the great recession and the interest rates were zero. Um, in the SBA world, that meant your rates were four to 6%. And they sat there for about six years. So everyone who got debt pre-08 where prime um, was higher, um, was refinancing. So we were doing a lot of refinance. Everyone's trying to improve cash flow. Then you got into a situation where rates are now climbing. Even before COVID, yeah. rates started to climb up. So you saw it less and less. And uh, now you're in, you know, highest rates I've ever seen in, in the 12 years I've been doing this, probably going back a couple of decades, it's been the highest it's been. And so you, you're seeing it a lot less, but I am doing one right now where it makes sense. And it's for a a really cool company it was like probably my favorite deal i've looked at uh, in a while because it was like the it's the american kind of classic manufacturing making a thing that you didn't even know existed that you need and um the guy was graduated high school he started working at that business this was 21 years ago he after he, he went to the navy he came back so he's a veteran he worked his way up. He bought the business about 13 years ago or something like that. Um, so this, and now we, and he's run the business for the last decade. So it's the only business he's ever worked at. And he started at ground zero and now he's looking to consolidate all his equipment debt. So he's got big machinery. Um, mm -hmm. and he's got, the, he's got robots in there now and, uh, it's, it's automation and he's been growing, you know, at a pretty steady 20% clip adding the equipment. And so what we came in and did was we took his monthly debt service from 135,000 a month to I think it was 40 or 50,000 a month. Wow. So big savings and um that's and and we consolidate 11 different notes and it was uh, 10 equipment notes and then one working capital loan that he had taken out that was, you know, quite frankly crushing them because they're making them pay like big interest rates on it. And so we came in and consolidated the whole thing. Okay, so so let's say in that guy's example, if two years from now he wanted to buy another item, I mean, he could probably buy that other item, maybe use leasing or something like that to still acquire it. But if he wanted to go and borrow again for new stuff, would that mean that all of your work would have to be resolved in some way, like refinanced again or undone or something like that? No, not only the only thing is if you are replacing an existing piece of equipment, so you want to sell it, but then you want to so buy a new piece. Something right? covered by that loan's 
security it, registration. Exactly. Yeah. But if you just want to buy another piece of equipment and, and you can even finance it or lease it, you know, you're free to do that. Okay. Okay, cool. So this past summer, there was a lot of fanfare around some changes to the SBA 7A program uh, and a bit of confusion. And I know that they're, everyone's still waiting for the SBA to come out with some kind of clarification document. C can you briefly summarize uh, the changes that they proposed uh, this summer? Yeah, so they came out, first they came out in May with a procedural notice, if you remember, and it said um, this one was partial change of ownerships for now permitted and the equity injection requirements changed. This is May. So yeah. from May to August, we were operating with these new rules that most lenders didn't, they, they almost ignored in many cases because they're like, this can't be right. And like, they, no one wanted to believe it. So some lenders were doing it. We were doing some of it. Um, but it was like, just like we had more questions than answers. So we finally, mm -hmm. you know, had, and the, and the new SOP came out too. Um, and, and it, it, same thing, more questions than answers. And, uh, it went into effect August one. Now in July, we're like, this can't possibly go into effect, right? Like we, we don't really know. Just because of the unanswered questions and the, people weren't yeah. sure about certain things. Okay. Yeah. There was like, there was contradictions, there were inconsistencies. There was stuff that were like, I mean, the SBA made sweeping overhaul changes. I mean, they, they basically took several steps back and wanted the lenders to then just do what they were doing on the conventional side, let's say, and basically gave them even more freedom. Cause it was already in a situation where, you know, lenders can kind of, there's every lender does a little bit different process wise, how they structure things like that. Well, the SBA wanted to get out of, uh, get out of certain regulations and, and then put some big, you know, things that used to be hot button issues with SBA that we were like, SBA was hammering us on. They, they all of a sudden they said, just do it, you know, do what you do. Right. And we're like, well, what, what does that mean? Right. Everyone was just like, what does that mean? So in July, it, did it seem like they were trying to unload some of the workload that may, maybe they're having, realizing they're having a lot of like administrative burden they're trying to free themselves from? Do you think that's kind of, a you know, you're asking, there? you're asking the, you're asking an interesting question. Why? Right. It, that's what no one knows. It, they've said it's what we've want. This is what we've wanted, right? We wanted to make it easier, but, and we always wanted to make it easier, right? We, we don't want to go through, uh, you know, all these ridiculous rules to get to a, a closing, but I guess it's not what we meant when we said make it easier and there was some confusion there. So I don't, I don't really know why all these changes were made. Like for example, equity injection, it used to be startups had to put in at least 10% equity. Okay. Well, that was removed. So now there's no, so you can theoretically borrow $5 million to start up a business with no equity injection. No lender's going to do that, but why would the SBA remove that guardrail? I, I, I just can't figure that one out. Like it makes no sense. So in July, they came on a call and they're like, Hey, we are going to fix these issues. We're going to release a technical update um, before August one. So we're in mid July. Before August 1, before all this comes out, we're going to come out with the notice. Mm. And, you know, I've never worked at the SBA. I know some of the people there. They're great folks. We, we like them a lot. But, like, we're in mid-October, mid and that guy, that technical update is still nowhere to be found. <laughs> so we've been operating kind of, you know, trying to figure it out as we're going um, for the last 45 days or so. And we are, like, hearing that the guidance is coming soon and i do think it is coming soon and and i think it will be here um in the next couple of weeks but i mean we'll see it, it's been unpredictable so i mean the sba loan program is a guarantee program and every bank that takes advantage of it they have their own policies procedures rules etc that that they're also applying to the deal that they look at and so you know i guess what most people have been doing is they've been kind of looking at these new changes and making their own determination about how they're going to apply them. Um, have you had the chance to do some deals so far this year since they came into effect that took advantage of some of the changes that were introduced? Yeah. And, and I, I could tell you about a couple of them. I mean, to, to break it yeah. down high level, like the big changes were the SOP, the, the, the rules, how you can structure deals, what's eligible, what's not. 
but also the process to get the SBA loan approval. Those were the two right. big sweeping changes. On the SOP changes, I think by and large it's positive, honestly. Um, while there are some contradictions that we need to clean up, some confusion, um, it's making deals happen that wouldn't otherwise have been happening, that would have otherwise happened. The two big ones are the partial change of ownership and the equity injection. I can give you two examples of each where we've yeah. been able to do deals under these new rules and made it happen. One of sure. them is- we, We'd love to hear those stories, yeah. One of them is an acquisition of a, um, of a construction company and it's a partial change of ownership, 99%. Um, the owner is retaining 1% and is gonna hold the licensing um, while the owners can get theirs in place. That is a problem we've always experienced in the SBA world with the licensing and that transition period. So that being able to retain ownership and that kind of solved that problem for us. And the seller did not does not need to personally guarantee is our interpretation, right? That's the big question. Do do the I, I'm seeing it every day. My lender's telling me this, this lender's telling me that. Yeah. And every lender has their own opinion and, and they have the right to. Um, we're taking the SOP at face value for now, and the S SBA said you can do that which says the percentages and how you look at the guarantees is based on post-sale. So post-sale, if you own as a seller less than 20%, you don't have to personally guarantee the loan. So, okay, so in that case, somebody bought 99% of the company, the former owner owns that one that last one percentage because this then ties them to the business and they're the ones with the license. Okay, so I get that. So my, my question is this, when you do that deal and the deal is done, do you then get, I don't know, the equivalent of a, a, a guarantee certificate from the SBA saying this deal is now guaranteed? And so if something goes wrong, you know that your guarantee is in place, or do they then reserve the right to review everything in your paperwork if you ever were to make a claim on that? It's the latter. Um, okay. the, no, no matter what you do, your, your guarantee is always in jeopardy if you did not do everything right even with the approval. So like I mentioned the approval process change. The SBA has said, actually, we're going to take eligibility off your plate uh, and we're going to we're going to take that on. So when you submit your SBA approval as a preferred lender, we're going to actually review it now. This is the big change that I didn't get as much coverage as, as I would think, because it's it's totally different for years. When we, as a preferred lender, which most people are for preferred lenders, if they're if you're working with them, someone who knows what they're doing, they're they're probably a preferred lender. It's not that hard to get. Um, you used to put the information in the SBA system, press enter, and it would take a few hours to put it all in. But you press enter, and it spits out the approval. Done, instant. Now we're putting it all in, and um, much of the time you're getting an error code. Um, you're doing a pre-check, you get an error code you have to now clear that error code before you can submit for the SBA approval. Now, on, okay. so on the error codes, that's a whole nother thing. It's like we got, there's 20 different error codes. You got to look at the chart and say, this error code means this, and then you got to go through the steps to clear it. Some are harder than others. Um, then you request the SBA approval. Then the SBA is now looking at the deal. The, they're putting eyes on it. They're, they're doing some checks behind the scenes and they're giving you the approval and it's supposed to take one or two days. Now I just had one that took 17 days. I have a couple that have been uh, waiting two months because of error codes. Um, so that's the process no one's happy about. Everyone wants that to go back to normal. Um, but even if you get that approval, or if you're not a preferred lender and you send the SBA the actual loan to re-underwrite, that's called GP, general processing, just because you get those approvals still doesn't mean you're good. Because then you have to close mm -hmm. the loan. And if you don't get the right insurance or you don't get this or the, that, it's all could be questioned by the SBA. So when there's a default, the SBA comes in and they they do check your work. And if you did everything right, they'll honor their guarantee. Okay. So I, I'm just trying to, I'm understanding a little bit better why some banks may be a little bit cautious about this, right? Because they mm -hmm. obviously, they don't want to be processing these loans and then maybe a couple of years from now have to reopen these files and, and find that they, you know, something was not quite right. Well, I mean, yes. However, in this particular case, you know, we have we have you have sources of information. You have the SBA, you have our trade organization, you have um, your peers in the industry. And so, yeah, every lender is going to make their own decision. This is one I feel comfortable with, because when I was at a conference um, three weeks ago, 
I was on a panel for business acquisition. It was me sitting right here. I had an attorney sitting here. It wasn't my attorney. It just happened to be an attorney. And then a chief credit officer and a, another BDO. And the SBA was in the audience, like the um, someone very high up. And the question came up about exactly what we're talking about. And the, and the SBA came up on the stage, bailed us out because we didn't really have the answer at the time. And they said, point blank, you can do this. It's up to you, you know, you apply prudent lending, lend how you want to lend. Everyone's going to do their own thing, but we are not as the SBA going to penalize you for something we put in black and white. So I got pretty comfortable when they're saying it like that clearly to me. And then they said it multiple times throughout the conference. They went on stage in the, in the, in the big room and they said it. So I feel comfortable with it, right? We feel comfortable with it. Um, the biggest lender in the country is comfortable with it. I saw on Twitter the other day. So I, I, I feel pretty good about that one. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, it, lenders can do what they want. Okay. So, so you, you gave an example of a, of a partial, uh, acquis, a partial buyout. Uh, what was the other example you wanted to share? Something different with the equity, uh, down well, yeah, it's doing deals with no cash, right? That was the thing when everyone came out and said, oh, you can buy businesses with no money now. Great. You know, the internet gurus went crazy. N that's it's it's a selective situation, but for the for that those folks where it makes sense, it's a great it's a great new thing. So like I'm doing one currently where it's an acquisition of a um well this one actually is under expansion. I'll give you a different one. So I have one where they have a they started a mobile tire repair business. Okay. And this is the true mom and pop business. And they wanted to acquire a brick and mortar tire shop, existing business acquisition. And they were bootstrapping the startup. So they didn't have a ton of cash and they were in different NAICS codes. So we couldn't use the expansion rules. So you needed a 10% equity injection. We allowed that entire 10% equity injection to be a seller note that was on standby for 24 months. So the seller held that. We finance 90%, buyers were able to buy the business before May, that would not have been possible. Yeah. So, I mean, it, it wasn't strictly an expansion, but any reasonable person looking at this can see how these two things are very related and how that buyer's experience is directly applicable to what they're getting into. Yes, that's one of the select situations. We call it like a related um, acquisition, like a strategic acquisition, where it's kind of your bot. You own a business; it has equity. You're buying a related business. It could be for vertical integration. It could be for a number of things. Um, and so we'll structure it that way. Um, the other, the other one that is really cool that we've actually done a few of. I don't. Um, I've had I, I, one's not coming to mind right now, but I know my video Ryan in Iowa has closed at least one and that's where the manager of the business is buying the business right it's we love these deals and, and we're comfortable structuring those with the sweat equity being counted from the buyer and the seller coming in with the 10 percent. because quite frankly the seller's the one that's been paying them for the last 10 years anyway any money that's coming into the deal ultimately came from the seller maybe is getting paid through a bonus or something and the buyer is putting it in but in, in that case you don't have to get super creative with that type of equity injection, you could structure it very cleanly right from the jump with the seller note. Cool. Do you want to answer some of the questions people have been piling in here? There's people in here? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, we got Clayton uh, actually who made a comment. He says, one of the most underrated channels on YouTube. No, Clayton, it's not underrated. It's a secret channel. The first rule of this channel is don't talk about this channel. And the second rule of this channel is don't talk about this channel. Clearly, people have been breaking the rules. All right. Uh, Costum uh, says, thanks for putting this on, guys. Thank you very much. AJ says, SBA Ray, when do you submit applications to SBA for closing? I guess. And then he followed up with, do you submit it before the closing checklist is complete? So I guess he wants to specifically know at what point along the process does it get submitted? So we are now, because of all the uncertainty having to do with the SBA and everything, we're submitting those approvals right there in the first week of closing. So we're, we got the commitment letter signed. Um, so now we have a closing specialist that we bring into the transaction. She's doing two things. She's creating the closing checklist. She's making sure that we have. And the, the commitment letter is your letter to the buyer saying, here are the terms of your loan. And the person agrees to this, they sign off. And then that's your go ahead to start 
making it happen. Absolutely, yeah. So we yeah. have, we're now in the final leg of the process. So you've gone through underwriting, you've set, we're on board, it's, com it's committed to, you've accepted, all we gotta do now is close it. And so we're doing the, making sure we have final structure because when we're inputting all that stuff into the SBA system, it's gotta be right. So we're, we're creating the checklist, we're getting on a call and we're pulling it right away, step one. So we're, we're doing that now. You, so we, we had one, we just had a closing kickoff call. Um, I think it was Tuesday, I want to say. And, um, and then, and, and the closing, um, you know, it just started this week and we have entered it into the system yesterday and now we're waiting, right? Hopefully best case scenario, SBA comes back, you know, today or Monday and, and we get the SBA approval. Um, and then, and if not, if there's an error code, then we've got to go clear it, just like I said earlier, and go from there. So that's that extra step we're having to do now under this new process. So the, these error, error codes are, are kind of like uh, technical rules. They've just got a computer probably set up doing some basic checking to kind of quickly flag if something may not be correct. Right. Yeah. Okay. So um, a few more. Oh, there's a whole bunch of questions here. Uh, Harry wants to know is if Fundex is a preferred SBA lender. Yes, we are. Yeah. And so that basically streamlines the process. Otherwise, you, you know, the, uh, the lenders who are not, they probably have a longer period of time before they get their approvals. Well, it's supposed to, it's supposed to streamline the process. Um, for many years, that's what it's been. Now it's a little bit, it's like you're, you got to pick your poison now. Um, but yeah, you can make decisions in house as a preferred lender. If you weren't a preferred lender, you actually have to send the whole package to the SBA to be re-underwritten and approved over there. And that is a little bit of a pain. So you can avoid that by working with a preferred lender. Yeah. And this is obviously something that you can just ask the lender, right? I mean, if they are or they aren't, they're going to absolutely answer that question, right? Um, another question from AJ, how much does the closing pros, how much shorter is the closing process if the buyer and seller already have their finalized uh, agreement of purchase and sale? So, the that's a good question so the the that's probably one of the heaviest items in the closing process that you um have to review as a lender um, we review it our attorney reviews it and we always say like this has to come in at least two weeks before you're actually trying to close so if you already have it done and it's finalized then uh you can yeah i mean you should be able to uh close sooner i, I would think yeah. Yeah. Well, it just, it's something, just one more thing that yeah. people won't end up having to wait for. Right. 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 Exactly. <clears throat> you can focus on the other stuff. Yeah. Not, not to say that the final agreement itself doesn't take some time. I mean, if either attorney finds something that they want to talk about, then obviously it can, it can carry on longer and longer. I know um, in my own experience, I've, I've had people sort of go back and forth for weeks sometimes on the language of those things. And, and obviously yeah. getting it done sooner is going to make things easier. Um, we've got, uh, Mike who says he's from Kansas city. Thanks for joining us today, Mike. Um, AJ says, thanks so much. Super helpful. Uh, another question from Harry, uh, asking if you can share if the rates offered by Fundex are floating or fixed and is it indexed to prime or 10 year treasury or some kind of, uh, tell us how the rate comes about. Uh, no, that's a good question. Um, especially with rates being in the news every day. Um, all the seven, eight loads are tied. All the seven, eight loans are tied to prime now. So wall street journal prime which today is 8.5%, right? Um, and the maximum SBA 7A rate would be three over prime, which is 11.5%. So it's an interesting question. When I get that question, I usually ask, um, so if I give you, uh, you know, if, or if the rate is 11%, let's say, would you rather have it today fixed or floating? David, what would you rather have? Well, it's gonna depend on what I believe is gonna happen down the road, right? I mean, the auto workers just secured, or they're asking for what, 50% over four years? So I don't know. I'm kind of on the fence if inflation and rates are going to keep going up or not. Right. Yeah. So for years, I mean, I, it, it, it like you're born wanting a fixed rate, I feel like, right? Because we just came well, it out. It gives you it. certainty. It gives you certainty. Yeah, exactly. And we've been living in record low rates for so long i mean we had zero interest rates for six years and then even inching up to covid like right before covid prime was seven and uh no prime was five 
I, I remember SBA loans were being done in the mid sevens before. Yeah, it, the rate was seven. The, so where it's eleven and a half today, it was seven and a half right before COVID. They dropped it back down to where it would be six. So it wasn't even like at that when the economy was red hot. It wasn't the rates weren't even high. So now all of a sudden we've gone up five hundred and twenty five basis points in what's it been eighteen months, two years. Yeah, it's been and quick. so. And the last three hikes were, so the, the Fed meets, I think, 10 times a year. Um, the last three meetings were uh, no movement, quarter point up, no movement. So we're kind of in a place right now there. So yeah, you're right. If you think the rates are going to come down, you want the adjustable rate to be able to ride that back down on the other side. And But if you think rates are going up, you, you want to fix the rate. Um, that said, all the ones I do, are adjusted quarterly, which are like known as variable rates. Well, you say all the ones you do, is there any kind of option or is that just the format of what you guys are offering? No, because it's, it's it's very um, common to do this type of pricing structure. There are banks that will fix it, um, especially the big banks. But by and large, 7A loans have adjust, adjustable quarterly rates. Yeah, and I would imagine if if you are getting it fixed, there's some kind of cost there because they need to work in some kind of derivative or something to to shed the the risk to themselves of the of the interest rate going much higher. Well, the risk could be that the rates go lower, and now you're stuck. You know, you're you're getting paid X, and you're paying this much on your deposit. So it's actually it's interesting. You might see right now a lender. I actually saw a lender fixing their rate about a quarter point lower than the adjustable rate. Ah, Harry responded, big banks will do fixed, but 30% down. Oh, you have to have a bigger down payment. I get you. Well, you know, Harry? the thing the, the thing is with the, with the rates, it's like people come to an SBA lender and they want, uh, you want a good rate. You want um, a creative structure or a high leverage structure utilizing some of these new things you and you want speed and execution you know and um you can typically pick like two of those things and uh you know it depends on what's most important to you yeah i so i was on a call the other day um week and a half ago and it was sort of a webinar format and there were some people on there that were in the consulting uh, they were accountants they're in the accounting industry they were talking about some deals they'd recently helped people with and they were business acquisition deals. And they specifically said that because of some of these increasing interest rates and the variability of SBA loans, what they've been seeing is larger seller notes, which were fixed. And it was kind of like a, a hedging strategy. You know, the buyer was a little afraid that the rates might continue to go up. So they're asking the sellers to have a bigger note at a, at a fixed rate to kind of offset the risk of, uh, of what could happen. Are you seeing any kind of change in in the format of the deals? Are you seeing more people kind of looking for bigger seller notes? Yeah, you know, actually, I'm seeing a lot more people look for forgivable seller notes. Um, so what what we're seeing is that there is a little bit more of a gap today between the buyers and the sellers. The sellers are, are maybe not getting exactly what they wanted for a price, but the but they're getting close. Uh, but buyers are having to pay so much more for their debt. So mm -hmm it's not like 2021, 2022 anymore, especially when we were giving out free money to buyers, if you recall that for a little bit of a period of time. So <clears throat> a lot of the purchase price is, it's like the, in the buyer's mind, it's like, yeah, if, if we can grow it, or if this even sustains, like maybe this makes sense, but like where we're headed, I don't know, maybe the trailing 12 is, has a slight downtrend. So it's like, how do we bridge the gap here? And like this forgivable seller note structure is you're seeing it more because it's like, the seller holds a note for 300,000 and then, you know, you look and then in 24 months, you kind of see if revenue dropped below a certain number or you can peg it to a bunch of different things, but then you right size that seller note, you, you, you forgive part of, or all of that seller note based on what happened. So, I mean, it's just one of those things where, um, you, it's sort of new, it's sort of creative. Not all, not every seller is going to be open to that. A lot of, for some, it, you got to kind of feel them out on that, right? I mean, you know more than me probably, but I, I, I think in many cases, you just want to keep it very simple. But in, yeah, in some cases, this could be a it's a It's a warranty of sorts. And, and, and I mean, people have been doing that kind of thing in deals for a long time. Yeah. And it used to be for different reasons, but um, basically it's like, this is the business 
that you're claiming to sell to me. And if it doesn't actually perform that way, once I'm the owner, then I want some kind of mechanism that adjusts the price post-closing. And, and normally, I mean, outside of the world of SBA, this would be done by having some kind of earnout feature probably, but the SBA doesn't allow that. So this is kind of just the same thing in reverse. It's just, okay, then here's a price and we're going to claw back, I guess, instead of earning out if the business doesn't perform. But it, it's interesting to see that, that it's interesting that you say you're seeing more of it because what it means is that people are, well, people are working harder in these negotiations to try to come to an ideal, a deal that's acceptable to both parties. And, and it means that the buyers are sort of holding fast a little bit more than maybe they were before saying like, no, we gotta have this kind of feature if I'm gonna take this sort of risk in, in paying that price. I mean, I'm looking at one right now and it's a, $2.5 million purchase and there's a million dollars worth of seller note on it. Um, and what, and half a million is forgivable. Um, one of the big tools you have, um, is the seller note, but also the SBA and how you structure it is important. And I'm seeing, like, I saw two brand new deals this week where it was structured in a way where it was like, stand by on the seller note for 24 months and then some sort of big balloon a year later. And, um, that's not you know that's not a great structure because you're stuck writing a big fat check as the yeah. buyer and in two in year three after acquisition and you don't know where you're going to be you don't know if that means you're not going to be able to reinvest in growth or maybe you don't even have the cash because maybe the business has taken a step down or you've hit some sort of hurdle so i don't like doing that what i like to do is structure it in a way where you can at least get the sba to kind of refinance that seller note for you. And you can't do that if you structure it that way, because the seller note, you have to make 24 ma monthly payments on it before you can refinance with SBA. So that's a yeah. big nuance. Not a lot of people know. So, so if you can structure interest only payments, even, even like where you're making a payment to the seller for 24 months post acquisition, then all of a sudden that seller note becomes SBA financeable. So if you are a seller, you know, you know, maybe, and a buyer, like there's a way to structure it where you have that flexibility where you can get a, a larger seller node that has good, reasonable terms. But if the SBA terms come down and you can re-amortize it 10 years with an SBA loan in two, three, four years, now you have that option as well. Yeah, I, I mean, anytime I'm working with anyone who wants to do any kind of balloon, I always counsel them against it because a, a balloon payment, you're basically gambling on the fact that you might qualify for credit at that point in the future. And we don't know what the future holds, right? So there, there's a few tricks around that. Um, you know, I always like to have some kind of plan B where if you cannot refinance that that seller note, there's a, some other mechanism to deal with it that still gives you a reason to want to refinance it. But if you can't, if your back's up against the wall, that at least you have some options that aren't going to put you into default, right? Because that's, that's, I mean... If, if you can't make a payment and it's to a seller, I mean, it's a person, you can go and talk with them, but now you're relying on being able to negotiate with that person down the road. And again, we don't know what the conditions are gonna be in the future. Uh, I, I Obviously we want to avoid being in any kind of default, any kind of creditor at all times, um, just to stay safe. Um, I've got a question here from David. It says, what is the biggest thing that prolongs the closing process? That's a really good question. Um, the SBA these days um, with some of these error codes, um, but the I would say the big the, the big thing is all parties have to be working together. Um, you need responsive parties all around that are willing to be communicative daily to get to the closing table. Um, closing process takes on average 30 to 45 days typically. Um, and that's because you have a lot of documents to chase down. Once all the documents are provided to the bank, you're going to be able to close about a week later or something like that, right? Uh, it's just getting those documents, you know, and it, there could be 30, 40, 50 documents. You're going to rely on some third parties. So it's um, the big ones that we always be are proactive about are life insurance. Life insurance uh, is takes can take some time. Um, if you use a company that kind of focuses for SBA, like they'll get it done actually pretty quickly. I, there's a couple of firms we work with that do it, but you want to get that out of the way. The purchase agreement, 
Um, that's a big one that usually does take two to three weeks of going back and forth to kind of hammer out. Um, the business insurances have been taking longer than we'd like. Um, so like the business insurances have to be in place. We have to be named on them, all that stuff. But um, besides that, it's, it's just like something is going to, we're going to, you're going to get hit with a curveball sometime between, you know, your, 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 you know, before you get to the finish or the finish line, the closing table. Um, I've been hearing that tax clearance certificates are taking longer now too. Depending on the state, that's one where we'll explain that one real quick. But yeah, the seller has to provide, it comes from the state. Um, it's a, you go to the state, you know, it could be the Department of Revenue, for example, and, and they, you have to request uh, a letter that is called, they, every state calls it something different. It could be a tax, um, a, a tax uh, certification letter where it just has the businesses, is, they're all current on, on taxes and you need that before you can close. And yeah, sometimes it takes a couple of days, but some states might be dragging. The other one is the tax transcripts. And um, we have to verify the taxes with the IRS before we can close, right? So there are some people that still haven't filed their taxes. I think the due date's like today or something, but we have to verify those 2022 taxes. So the IRS is gonna put that into their system. Who knows how long it's gonna take until we can actually verify it independently with a 4506 or an 8821 form, which is the form that allows you to do that. So, you know, that's another thing that can come out. Now, all this stuff could be fine. You could have no issues, but, you know, it. there's a hundred different things that, you know, we have to do throughout the process and any one of them could pop up and become an issue that you just have to be prepared to resolve. And, you know, these things are on your checklist, obviously, the things that have to be done before we can close. Um, if one of these things is hanging up, is it possible to do some kind of workaround? Is there any negotiability in that at all? Or is it very much just a, nope, box got to be checked for us to close? It depends what it is, all right? Mm -hmm. On the tax transcripts, for me, that's a hard no. For the SBA approval, it's a hard no. For a lease, maybe you have some flexibility if you can't get a 10-year lease, for example, if it's a business where the location isn't really, doesn't really mm -hmm. matter, right? If it's a warehouse. So there's... We, we have uh, definitely some tools in the toolbox to kind of cross a lot of hurdles. Um, one, you know, we just uncovered on one deal a, you know, a, a, we have two deals in closing right now. One, we find a lien that we didn't know it was there on a property we're taking as collateral. The other, we found a judgment on a seller that the seller doesn't want to pay. Um, and that's an interesting one because it's so old that they don't think they have to pay it. And so, you know, this is the type of stuff we don't find till you have, you're in closing, you order the lien searches, you uncover this, you know, these 15 year old things that people totally forgot about and you got to find a way to deal with them. So if you have a good, if you have a, a bank and, you know, we're non-bank, so we we're as flexible as it comes. Right. And then you got the right type of attorney that can guide you and allow you to make business decisions as a lender. You know, the bank council, they matter a lot in this. If you have a really conservative bank council that just wants what they want, it could kill, it could kill things. Right. Um, so you kind of have to be able to rely on really good legal advice and then make business decisions from there. Well, speaking of, of deals dying or being killed, I have another question about uh, about your career. This is from David. As a, as a business development officer, how frustrating is it to lose a deal in closing? Is it rare that a buyer or seller walk during the closing process or like how often does it happen? Um, it is, you know, it's a, it's a punch in the gut uh, for everyone involved, right? It's not... For me, I expect it. So like, for example, you know, last month I lost a deal that it wasn't even buyer and seller walking. It was just, um, they were, the thing is when I put out a, a loan proposal, I intend on coming through. Some people don't have that much faith in banks and they go down the process with two banks at the same time. So I delivered and then the borrower ended up, there's like a $3.3 million acquisition loan, uh, beautiful deal. And uh, they just didn't accept the commitment letter. So I, you know, I'm working on it for a month and a half and uh, then it just, they say, no, thank you. So it's like, all right, that's a punch in the gut. That's, you know, volume you thought might've been there for, for you and the company. And it wasn't. Then this year, then this month I had to, we had to pull the plug on a $4 million loan because of one of these SBA issues. Um, it was an S it was the error code that is the kiss of death. And uh, it's it's the one uh, having to do with EIDL PPP loans, and there was just no communication. We're in closing for two months. Seller's not going to wait forever. SBA is not telling us anything. Deal died. 
we all worked on that one for months and months. Um, that happens, uh, but it's it's part of business. I mean, mm. it, it's it's not. I don't I don't get uh, I don't I try not to let it keep me down. But you know, it's it's more about how like why does why does it fall apart between buyer and seller, and how can we figure that out sooner? Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, it's, it's all about, like you said, it's all about setting expectations and communication and, and making sure that people understand what's going to be expected. Um, and of course, with, with sellers, as much heads up as they can get, even before they meet the buyer, you know, from a broker or someone to be told, like, here are the things that are going to be required of you in this process that someone's going to ask for as we move along here and help get them as prepared as they can be. I, you know, I'm not seeing that much deal fallout in closing between buyer and seller, to be honest with you. Like I'm seeing some fallout early, but once it goes under LOI, you might see a, a retrade here and there based on new information, but the buyers for better or for worse, the ones I'm dealing with, they are moving mountains to try to get these deals done. And it's almost like, sometimes I'm like, are you sure this isn't a sign we should you know, <laughs> uh, give up. Like when you just get hit like multiple times and you're just like, wow, this guy's still fighting to get this deal done. And the sellers, you know, they obviously, they want to sell to the buyer they've selected. They don't want to start the whole process all over again. So it's actually, for me, it's been pretty rare. I think it, that, I don't know if that's just me, right? I only, I do 35, 40, 45 deals a year. And uh, about 80% of those are acquisitions. So, I mean, I'm just looking at my sample size, but knock on wood, I don't have that many deals dying after commitment. Those are the only two that really died. I mean, I, it's only two I can think of this year. Yeah. I mean, with the people I work with, if someone's going to actually sign an LOI or an offer or something like that, it means that the deal is obviously good enough that they want to do the deal from both sides of the fence, right? And a lot of the times, if, if the relationship is strong, if that seller really likes that buyer and the buyer really likes the business, even if something happens in the banking realm, even if for whatever reason their loan doesn't get approved, um, there are many times that the buyer and seller will find out another way to make it work if it's at all possible. Um, sometimes it's not, but uh, if it is at all possible, they'll, they'll work on something else and, and try to make that deal happen. Um, time for just a couple more here, everyone. Um, Dave says, this is the most helpful conversation I've heard on SBA funding. Thank you both. Well, thank you, David. This is, this is when people hit the like button and then, uh, and, and share the, the broadcast on other social media platforms. That's, that's your cue, everybody. Uh, Jim says, will taking out a home equity line of credit to reduce your equity percentage, keep your home off of a personal guarantee? How long would the HELOC have to be taken out prior to the SBA loan initiation? So if you have 25% or more equity in your house or a property at closing, we have to use that equity as collateral towards the SBA loan by putting a lien on that property. So if you have less than 25% equity, when we talk about equity, it's you have your first mortgage, maybe your HELOC, those liens are counting against your equity. So whatever the difference is, if it's less than 25% at closing, then the SBA is not going to require the lender to take that, put that lien on that property. Now, the lender still might out of an abundance of caution. It's up to the lender again. But and then there's no time limit. That's just at closing is when you're kind of like looking at that. It's not anything after. It doesn't let, matter. Let me ask a follow up to that then. Let's let's say that I have a to use round figures. I've got a hundred thousand dollar house with a $60,000 first mortgage, okay? And then I go and get a $20,000 HELOC, so that would add up to 80, but I don't withdraw any money on the HELOC. Is it, are you just looking at the liens register or are you actually looking at the balance on the HELOC? I'm, no, I'm not, I'm looking at the lien, not the balance for me. Okay, so even if I haven't drawn on that HELOC, you're just gonna look at it and say, no, the equity is so encumbered that we don't need to put a, a lien on this house. Correct. Okay. Um, Again, another question from David. What's the most interesting deal you're working on right now in closing and why is it interesting? Okay. Um, I, I mean, I'm going to go with, I don't, I'm probably, I don't want to share too much information, but I have a deal right now for a young couple who had a baby during this process. And I just had a baby like 10 months ago 
And so I couldn't imagine trying to go through this process while having a baby. But I, I am just fighting for these guys because I really like them. And I think that's pretty cool. Well, yeah, I mean, you feel a certain kinship, right? You're, you, you're, you can empathize with their scenario quite well. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but other than that, um, I mean, <laughs> every, de every deal is so, is so unique. I mean, that's why, you know, I love what I do, right? It's just like, I've got some weird stuff that uh, is on every deal, just like really unique. There's always something, right? There's no such thing as just a clean, normal Manila, vanilla deal. Um, every, but that's, that's what keeps it fresh and exciting for me. Cool. Ray, if, if people want to find you out there on the internet, uh, where do they, where do they go look? You can go to sbaray.com. Um, you can also find me on the Fundex web website. And then I also am, I'm, I'm getting back into the YouTube game. So I got another, I got new, uh, episodes and new, uh, videos coming soon. So check me out at SBA Ray on YouTube. Awesome. Thanks, Ray, and thank you very much from uh, from everyone who is who is tuned in, and um, we'll see you next time. Hang awesome. on for a second. I'm gonna I'm gonna play the uh, I'm gonna play the uh, end of show reel. And for everyone who tuned in, thank you very much. Uh, please remember to like and share and hit subscribe and all that other stuff. It helps the YouTube algorithm know that the content is good, and and it's the algorithm that will end up uh, leading more people here. So we'll see you all soon. So how can you learn more about buying, selling, financing, and managing small and medium-sized businesses? Easy, go over to my blog site, davidcbarnett.com, where you can learn more about me and how I work with my clients. You can learn more about my books and courses that I've prepared for you. You can find out how to subscribe to my email list, the YouTube playlists, and more. There's literally hundreds of hours of content there, all for free, and I'd love for you to be my guest. Special thanks go to Mark Willis at Lake Growth Financial, today's video sponsor. Mark helps people better manage their personal and business finances through the bank on yourself insurance strategy. This is something I've done personally and I've seen others use it successfully for years. Go to newbankingsolution.com to find all the interviews I've done with Mark and learn more about the advantages of these programs. While there, sign up for a free consultation to learn what this solution might look like for you.